0: say truth is stranger than fiction, but sometimes it can be pretty hard to tell one from the other. Just think about reality TV, or urban legends, or dad's I-caught-one-this-big fishing stories. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we walk the fine line between truth and fiction, as we take you to the B-side. MTV's real world has made us all very aware of what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. But there used to be a simpler time before reality TV. It was a time when Americans trusted each other and trusted strangers, maybe not enough to marry them on live TV, but enough to get suckered into some bizarre schemes concocted by a couple of pioneering entertainers. Dave Gilson tells us more.
1: Here's the scene, the suburbs of San Francisco sometime in the early 1960s. Two young men, one tall, one short, both dressed in dark suits and ties, walk into a neighborhood pharmacy.
2: Excuse me. Hi,
3: sir. Hi say, what do you have uh, here in your drugstore? Do you have anything
4: that we can use to sterilize? What do you want to sterilize? Operating equipment. I, uh, let me just say this right away. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, but right. I'm going to perform an operation, or what you'd call an operation on this man. I think I read enough about the thing that I can do it. Well, the only... I've agreed, I've agreed. The only problem is getting the stuff sterilized. I'll tell you this, but now, legally, whether you agree or not, you could be in trouble. I'm not going to press any charges.
1: The tall one explains that he has a pain in his chest, and he's asked his friend to do some exploratory surgery to see if he can find the cause. His friend says he feels confident he can pull it off, even though his only medical background is an 11th grade education and a few hours studying anatomy textbooks. Needless to say, the pharmacist is skeptical. Can
4: I just get some cleansing powder? I would I would I, I, I would sell you I wouldn't sell you a Kleenex because I'm not much against it. He's done two operations on, on a pussy cat. One on a dog, One on a dog, one on a pussycat. Last week both of them came through pretty well. For a day or
1: two.
2: How about some antiseptic powder?
1: This kind of back-and-forth goes on for several minutes until the pharmacist finally throws up his hands in disgust.
2: Give up. If you damage his heart and what you're, you're going to try and do, you realize what's going to happen? What? There's no replacement bar for a heart. He can't go to the, to, the, to, the, to the hardware store and get you one.
4: Now forget about it and go away.
1: Unlike the unsuspecting pharmacist, you've probably realized that this is all a hoax. The perpetrators were Mal Sharp and Jim Coyle. From 1960 to 1965, they went around the San Francisco Bay Area pulling stunts like this one, putting ordinary people in ridiculous situations and capturing the results on tape. Mal Sharp, he's the tall one, recalls meeting his partner in crime in a boarding house. I was having dinner and Coyle was sitting at a table telling some preposterous story to
4: some young girl at the table about how he was... Uh, He looked about 28, but he was telling her he was 106. The girl was totally taken in, and I'm like looking at this guy going, this is sort of weird. And then I went up to his room, and uh, yeah, he told me it was a put-on, and
1: we sort of started hanging out after that. The two formed a perfect duo. They were both in their 20s. Sharp was big and lanky and had a booming voice, while Coyle was small and spoke in a rapid-fire deadpan. Their career as audio imposters began when they took a tape recorder hidden inside a briefcase and hit the streets of San Francisco. Sharp recalls the first put-on they recorded.
4: We go in and we tell this guy, he's like a Greek guy, he doesn't speak English very much, he hardly understands us, and we tell this guy that Jim can stand in the store and make these weird kind of whooping whooping sounds, and there's something about these sounds that's going to bring people in off Union Street to buy in the store. And the guy's going, I can't believe this is going to happen, I can't believe you're going to do this, and then you hear whoop, I mean louder than any. And sure enough, people would sort
1: of notice it and sort of get drawn into the store. It was was pretty bizarre. They weren't trying to make money or make trouble, though they did eventually get a record deal, and they once got arrested. They were just a couple of young guys with a fancy tape recorder, some time to kill, and a compulsive need to mess with people's minds. Sharp explains another one of their typical setups.
4: Maniacs in Living Hill was a premise that we'd used a lot, you know, trying to get someone to go down into this pit. And, I mean, usually the thing is to present them with some hideous job um, that was gonna be down in a flaming pit. So um, we got this guy and this guy agreed to, he'd go down with the flames. So then we tried to make it a little more treacherous, you know, there'd be snakes curling around your legs. He said, well, that doesn't bother me. I don't know, he sort of wanted this job. Have you worked with maniacs before? No, never. Have you worked with flame before? No,
3: not necessarily.
4: One other uh, aspect, large bats fly through the air. You've seen bats, haven't you? These are very large bats with, uh, I might say, extremely large teeth from the photo I saw. They'll be swooping down over your head. Would the bats at all deter you from doing your job? No, I don't think so. If I had a job to do, I'd try to do it regardless of the bats or anybody else. Now, I am, I'll explain the situation to start with. I want to be sure you can handle a job. I am paying $46 a week uh, initially. Uh, Is this agreeable? I think finally I said he was going to have to eat a bat for lunch or something like that, which I guess he didn't mind that, but when we told him he was going to have to cook the bat, that was finally, but that was like eight minutes into this thing. Have you ever consumed bats?
3: No, I haven't. Would you look forward to the idea of actually consuming uh, bats? Eating what? Yes. I guess so.
4: In other words, your lunch, you go down and open up your little brown paper bag that Mr. Coyle had prepared, and inside there there would be a bat, and then you would just prepare it down in the flames. Oh, I had to cook it myself? Yeah. Oh, no. Why? Oh, no, I,
3: well, I could, if you could cook it for me, I wouldn't mind eating it, but, you cook know, what? a bat. Yeah. But as long as I didn't see it cooking, you know,
4: I
1: think I could devour it. It may be hard to imagine how they pulled off stunts like this. But you got to remember that Coyle and Sharp were doing this in the early 60s, which for all intents and purposes was still the 1950s. People trusted each other, and they trusted authority. This was before America's complacency came apart at the seams and people got used to watching shows like Candid Camera and Ali G. It was a more naive time, and Coyle and Sharp were perfectly adapted to take full advantage of it.
4: We were very uh, earnest looking guys. You know, we wore suits and we were just pretty conventional looking people. And and, and Jim had a great gift of gab. So, and the media wasn't so present then. You know, people weren't, you know, on the bridge of going, is this a TV show? Is this a put on? And there was no reason not to believe us. I mean, we were really nice, convincing young men, you know, kind of
1: guy you'd hire for your company. (laughs) Unlike so called reality shows, Coyle and Sharp weren't gross or cruel. No one got hurt or humiliated. And when it was over, they usually let their victims in on the joke. Sharp says it was surprising how well people took it.
4: I mean, I think a lot of times people just enjoyed being taken on this improvisational ride with us. They didn't know what was going on, but there was something. I mean, it would suddenly become a reality to them. And you could see in their eyes they were really picturing being down in that pit, you know, with the bats and... and, it was a wonderful moment, you know, when we were all standing there in this imaginary uh, scene, when it was all over, the fact that they had entertained all these images in their mind, in a way, was sort
1: of interesting to them, I think. Coyle and Sharp split up in the late 60s. Coyle went off to England and never did radio again.
4: He was one of these people, and maybe you've had friends like this, you know, they can't stop putting people on. I mean, he really was, you know, to the point of, I realized later, kind of nuts, you know, kind of paranoid about, but there was
1: something he just had to do that. When Coyle died in 1993, Sharp helped his friend get one final laugh. When the San Francisco Chronicle interviewed him for Coyle's obituary, Sharp told them that Coyle had spent the last years of his life running a skydiving school. Sharp remained in the Bay Area, becoming a local radio and TV personality known for his offbeat man-in-the-street interviews. Today, his career as a prankster is pretty much over. Even so, He's wistful about his days as a full-time trickster.
4: You know, I still feel 20, and I still feel very much present in this time when Coyle and I were roaming around San Francisco. It was a long time ago, you know, way before you were bored, but it's still kind of
1: recent to me in a lot of ways. He never lost his sense of humor or his tendency to gently kid people, but he also seems to have realized that pulling people's legs all the time, as Jim Coyle did, can be a hard act to keep up. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson.
0: You can listen to Coil and Sharp tracks and buy their CDs at CoilandSharp.com. Every family has its secrets, the things everyone knows about but no one talks about. For besides Tamara Keith, a piece of fiction revealed one of these unspoken bits of family history.
5: When I was a little girl, three or four, my dad was artistic director for a theater company in Hollywood. The actors and crew were all veterans, including my dad. They did plays about war. Fast forward 20 years. My dad is a high school principal. My little brother Donovan is in college preparing to audition for his first play, and he needs a monologue.
6: I I figured, hey, Dad would probably know where some good monologues are. So uh, I emailed him, and uh, I said, hey, Dad, could you please recommend a good monologue for me? I got an email back from him, and he told me that he had something in storage uh, from a play that he thought would just be perfect for me.
5: The next day, Donovan gets an email from Dad with a script for a monologue from a play called Viet Damned. It's a dramatic battlefield scene with a soldier raging as his friend is clearly dying in front of him.
6: I'm not going to leave you here. You're going to make it. We are going back together. Just shut up. I am not leaving you here alone. This place is crawling with gooks. You're not going to die. You, you can't die. You can't go without me. It's not fair. We had plans. People had heard of it. I, I ran into a couple of people and they're like, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard of uh, Viet Damned. I, I think uh, I read something from that once. And then uh, there's some other people like, oh, I've totally heard of, of that play. Cool. And like, maybe I really found a good play.
5: A couple of days later, Donovan gets another email from Dad. Congratulations on getting a part in the play. Glad you liked the monologue. By the way, I wrote it. So
7: once you realized that Dad had written it, did you think back and go, "Okay, what was Dad thinking? Like, what what made Dad write this
6: piece?" I'm not entirely sure. I really have no idea.
7: The fact is that we know virtually nothing about Dad's Vietnam experience.
6: Well, we know some stories, but we very know very little, uh, and the stories are all about his days at boot camp uh, and how he worked the system while he was in uh, the the Navy. But we don't really know what happened after boot camp and uh, before he came home. It's kind of a big black hole.
5: Here's what we do know. Dad was about to be drafted, so he enlisted in the Navy. In 1969 and 70, he served in Vietnam. He was a Navy photojournalist, and says he was shuttled into all the hotspots to take pictures. He probably witnessed a lot, but we don't know what he saw, what he experienced, or how he felt about any of it. He just doesn't talk about it. Instead, when my brother and I were growing up, he exposed us to Vietnam through fiction. Even when we were way too young to be watching R-rated movies, Dad had us watch films about the war.
6: It's all we ever see, really, is like once a year on, like, uh, Veterans Day, Dad pulls out all the Vietnam films and we watch, like, all of them. And then he'll get into analysis of, like, various actors while we're watching. So we don't quite know why we're watching, whether or not it's, like, some part of his lived experience that he wants us to uh, understand or whether it's his uh, trying to remember his friends that died in the war, or any number of things, really.
7: Yeah, we don't know. There's just a lot of stuff that we don't know. And so there's these films, and then this monologue comes along, and I'm trying to figure out what it
6: means. Like, What did Dad go through?
5: So I finally decide to do it, to ask Dad about his Vietnam experience and why he never talks to us about it. But when I sit him down with my microphone, the questions don't come out easily. Usually I feel like I have superpowers with this microphone. I can ask anyone anything. But with Dad on this topic, I'm awkward, shy, powerless.
7: What? Why? Well, so all through our childhood, you've had us watching these films. Deer Hunter, Platoon, Apocalypse Now.
3: Well, I don't know whether I thought that it would help you have a better idea of why your father was as... different as he was, or whether it would just give you a sense of, of history. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, my dad never really talked about World War II. There were plenty of movies and so forth, but there was no real sense of of any kind of sharing. And I don't think I really shared too much to my kids, but I did take them to the movies.
7: What we're trying to figure out is if you were trying to tell us anything by writing this.
3: Well, that that I'm... That's a good question. Um, I wasn't wasn't writing it as a catharsis. I kind of did that whole piece when I went to uh, the dedication of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial 20 years ago or so.
7: Why don't you tell your kids what your experience was?
3: I don't think my kids ever asked.
7: I don't think we were encouraged
5: to.
3: Who discouraged you? you oh okay well i don't know
5: the more we talked the more dad avoided my questions and the more i wanted to shut off my recorder and never bug him about vietnam again so maybe those movies he showed us every veterans day were really just good movies and maybe viet damned is totally fabricated and even if these things do reflect my dad's experience in vietnam I'm not sure I need to know how much of it is real.
0: Tamara Keith is b side senior producer. She lives in Columbus, Ohio. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Got something to say about what you've heard so far in today's show? Send us your comments, see photos of our adventures in radio, and listen to past shows online at RadioBside.org. That's Radio, the letter B-S-I-D-E.org. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month, Truth and Fiction, and the Fine Line that Divides Them. For a lot of people, the height of fiction is believing in God. Others feel nothing could be truer than his existence. Independent producer Hans Andersen falls somewhere in between, and that, he says, is the worst place to be. He brings us this piece of semi-autobiographical fiction.
2: I was walking down the street last week, and I found myself talking to God. And I always pray when I'm walking to the bus. And for the last year, I've prayed to find my dad, who I haven't seen since I was four. And I don't know much about other than his name, John Thomas. There are over 64,000 John Thomases west of the Mississippi. I looked it up once at the library. So I prayed to God and asked him about it. And he replied. Though so instead of telling me something useful about my dad, like where he lives or if he's still alive or not, he tells me to go open the door for that woman going into the dress shop. She's carrying a baby. God said he had special plans for that baby. He didn't want him jostled or hurt. So I did. I walked over and opened the door. The new mother said thank you, and I walked on, tried to do my part. I wasn't so much talking to God as I was listening. So God did find out that he likes to be called God, not Big Guy or the Grand Poobah or Papa Boom Boom. God says, go over there to that man at the bus stop and tell him that his sister was a fine woman, that she'll be just fine now in heaven. Her pain is gone. So I go over and tell this guy. The guy, he's just standing there waiting for the bus, reading the paper, and he looks startled when I first talk to him. And when I'm done with my little, your sister is fine and she's in heaven now, spiel, he hugs my neck. And then it turns out we're both crying. I'm not much of a crier. My wife jokes that I wouldn't cry at my own funeral. And here's this guy hugging me and we're both crying like little children. Then God tells me, "Don't give that guy 50 bucks. That guy is a young man in a bad suit eating a fast food breakfast. He's waiting for the bus too, but he's still sitting on the ledge well away from the stop. Headphones pumping out loud music loud enough to be heard 20 feet away. He's holding a small bouquet of flowers. I'm not a rich man. And I started to tell the big guy, uh, God, that I'm pretty flat broke. And the next 50 bucks I see will probably be the 50 bucks that give me on my last day of prison. My earnings saved from 20 years of hard labor. I stay in prison due to my part in the bank robbery I will need to do just to put food on my own table tonight. People are looking at me kind of weird now they can't hear God, just me. So God says, look in your wallet. So I pulled out my wallet and sure enough, there's 50 bucks I've never seen. It's one of those new counterfeit proof 50s too. And I hadn't held one of those before. So I started to look at it and think, well, maybe my wife put it in there this morning because I was supposed to pay the water bill. Or maybe buy a present for one of our kids or something. God says he's going to send down an earthquake if I keep stalling. And that he put the 50 in there just before he asked me to give it to that guy. And I asked him how come I didn't feel him put it in my wallet. And he said, well, he is God after all. He can do anything. I said, well, fine. Why didn't you put it in that guy's wallet instead of mine? You know, cut out the middle, God said, "50 isn't the point. It's helping your fellow man. It's the fact that this guy just prayed that he'd be able to take out this cute girl from work, but he didn't want to, have to take her to a cheap restaurant. He'd rather do it up nice. He said if he found the 50 bucks in his own wallet, wonder, like you did, about it being for something else. Fair enough, I said. Should I tell him it's from God? No, God said. Mostly I like it when people aren't sure I'm around. Why is that? I asked. Why not just come from behind the curtain and let us all have a good look at you? I'm sure people would be pretty happy to know for sure you exist. Maybe people would stop doing all that bad stuff. No, said God, they wouldn't. Most of the bad stuff is already done by religious people anyway. Yeah, I said to God as I walked over to give the guy God's $50. You're probably right. Looking back, it's kind of surprising I said that. I mean, God, by definition, is always right. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. Sheesh. What an idiot. Anyway... I gave the guy with the flowers 50 bucks and told him to have a nice date, and he just stood there talking at me. I smiled and turned away. I guess God probably wanted those two together. The guy and his date. Maybe their children will be important, or maybe it's their children's children. Maybe I just helped make the next great man, or maybe not. I wonder if anyone ever gave Adolf Hitler's dad money for a date. Wish he could have that money back. By now, I'm having a good time, and I was trying to think up ways to ask God about my dad because I've been trying to find him for over a decade now, but it's been rather hopeless. My pastor says God specializes in hopeless situations. Just as I worked up enough nerve to ask him about it. God cuts in and tells me I shouldn't go to work today, since I wasn't really keen on work either. I am. And thinking I've got the best excuse in the world. Um, boss, God doesn't want me to go to work today. He's using me to further his work in the world. I reluctantly agree. Sure, why not? I will get to talk to God every day. Well, actually, I do talk to God every day. I just never heard a reply. So the next thing I know, God tells me to hop in the nearest car, which happens to be a 1979 AMC gremlin, hand-painted purple with big green flowers on top, and I asked him if he doesn't mind I checked a nicer car. He told me, sure, why not? There's a Hummer the next block over and it's running and the doors are unlocked while the woman is using it is upstairs in her apartment, getting her cell phone. I scurry over and there she blows. Basic white, the cheap truck Model H2. Not bad, I hop in and take off. It wasn't until then that my conscience starts to get the best of me and I ask God, say, don't you disapprove of stealing? Yes, he says, as a matter of fact, I do. Then he says, take a ride right at the next light, so I did. Then I ask him back, I say, well, if you disapprove, take the on-ramp here. He and I say, if you disapprove, then why did you just tell me to do it? I was afraid he was going to say, I was testing you. You flunk. Ha 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 ha, see you in hell. But he didn't. He said, take the Johnson exit, go into the underpass, hang right at the Hummer dealership. Keep your speed down. There's a cop next to the Dunkin' Donuts after the light. So I did all that. But I was wondering about the stealing thing. And God was silent. It was kind of uncomfortable. I mean, what do you say to God to break the silence? Am I like going to chit-chat with him? How's the weather? Fine, I control it. How was your day? Fine, I control it. Am I going to waste God's time? Is it possible to waste God's time? Have I been wasting his time all these years with those silly, stupid little prayers asking for stuff? Does time even apply to God? I was so worried about what to say, I didn't say anything. At least I could have asked him about the time thing. That would have been interesting to know. Just when I'm about to say, uh, God, what do I do now? I had just pulled into the Hummer dealership. God pipes up and says, Go in and give the keys to the kid in the red jacket. Just hand it to him and walk away. This Hummer was stolen from the lot last week, and you just returned it. I bet they'll be happy to see it. And God said, Yep. That kid will get a $3,000 reward for finding it. God's pretty cool. But I wondered to myself it would have been easier just to stuff $3,000 in that kid's wallet. I forgot God can read my thoughts, though, and he said, If he came home with $3,000 in his wallet and a story to back it up, what do you think his mom would do? Good point. So now I'm hoping it And I'm in the industrial part of town No cabs, no sidewalks, no coffee shops No stolen cars to return So I said to God, now what? oh God said, just hang on for a while What are you in a hurry for? Well, I don't know, I said, it's kind of fun He said, the next thing I do won't be so much fun I asked him, what the next thing is? He said, well, there's going to be a mugging coming up And you got to stop it I said, what? Why don't you stop it? Make the mugger choke on his gum Have him trip on the sidewalk And bang his chin so hard he passes out God said because then you won't get credit for being a hero and you won't get on the evening news. I said not being a hero today sounds fine to me and I'm not quite good looking enough to be on TV. But then I felt a sense of uneasiness and so I asked God if I was going to get hurt you know stabbed or something. He said probably but not to worry about it I wouldn't die. I told him I didn't really want to do it and he said I should anyway and I said no I don't think I will you can't make me. And then the next thing I know this lady comes running around the corner and runs right into me. We both fall over really hard and I hit my head on the pavement and I'm bleeding from my scalp and my head hurts really bad and I dizzy and i can't quite put together what just happened i remember the time in the fourth grade when i got hit full in the face by a soccer ball and bleeding through the nose and all over the school nurse kept saying oh dear oh dear and it was dizzy and the room was spinning i could hear the woman who ran over me screaming and yelling and fighting with someone i rolled over and found her and the mugger fighting for her purse i said to her let him have it already would you it's much easier she ignored me and continued to fight for her purse so i bit the guy in the leg It was all I could think to do. He yelled, grabbed his shin, lost his grip on the purse, and then looked at me. I was still on the ground, within kicking distance. I was looking up at him, too. I wasn't biting him anymore, and I was trying to figure out a way to get out of there before he started kicking me in the face. I'm pretty sure I can't afford to get beat up again. Another roughing up, and I'll be promoted to CEO of the Ugly Club. So I rolled over to get out of the way. When I was out of kicking range, I stood up and began to run, and that's when I was shot. The bullet went right by my heart, but missed every internal organ in my body. I bled for a long time, and really well, too. Better than the time I was at the playground with the soccer ball. Usually, when I give blood at the Red Cross, The nurses comment that I bleed quickly. I can fill up one of those pint bags in just a couple minutes, and that pleases them for some reason. And that thought came into my mind as I looked down at my bloody shirt. I could feel the blood running down into my underwear. I'd expected the blood in the underwear thing. It's kind of weird, of course. I've never really expected to be shot either. So I'm in the hospital for about a week. The docs just want to keep an eye on me. I'm doing fine. Every time a doctor comes in, he says the bullet entered my body in one direction, took a left turn just before my spine, then a right turn just after that, and it's really a miracle. One of them said they're going to dedicate a semester to it at Johns Hopkins in the spring. And my wife visited me the second day, and she told me some guy captured the whole thing on videotape. He was recording the neighborhood to show his family in some other town. He was trying to allay their fears by showing them that the place he lived in was actually very safe and nice, and they needn't worry anymore. Well, the tape makes national news in 2020 to the story on it. So they asked my wife for some photos of me, something to show while they're talking about me, including some of when I was a kid. On the tape, you can see me unwittingly saving the woman and then being shot in the back as I ran away. It's interesting because when I got shot, I just kind of crumpled and fell where I was. Dropped like a beanbag chair. didn't look so bad, just kind of like I decided to stop running and lay down where I was. That's kind of what happened, I guess. On the sixth day in the hospital, I got a visit from my wife who said she had someone she wanted me to meet. i had enough media and reporters in the room that day, and I told her I just wanted to sleep. But she insisted, because this man had come a long way. He lives in West Virginia, and when he saw the news, he flew in with his wife and kids to see me. And so, in comes this man, who looks just like me in 30 years, and walks up and says, Ponce. And look at him. And without even thinking, it came out so naturally, I said, Dad? And we hugged. Thanks, Scott. I owe you one. But next time, can't you just email me his address?
0: Hans Anderson is the Montana transplant living in Corpus Christi, Texas, with his wife and six children. Hans is working on a straight-to-audio book. That is, a book that will only be published in audio form.
6: Here we go. If God controls the landing disease Keeps a watchful eye on me If he's really so damn smart Well, my problem is I can't see Well, who'd want to be? Who would want to be? Such a control freak Well, who would want to be? Who would wanna be? Such a control freak
0: That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lisa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on September 1st with a show that asks the question, what's in a name? In the meantime, check out our website at Side.org. That's radio, the letter B, S-I-D-E dot org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.
6: What good curves can you throw? And all that cake, I can't make to your wedding But I'm sure I'm going to be at your wedding You were talk, 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 talking in circles
1: that day When you get to the point, make sure that I'm still awake, okay? I went to bed and
6: didn't see why every day turns out to be A little bit more like good cascading, yeah